one of my happiest childhood memories was watching The Muppets Christmas Carol. I know it's warm outside, so I shouldn't mention Christmas, but The Muppets Christmas Carol was literally a warm and fuzzy version of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. And in the story, we meet a man named Ebenezer Scrooge. He has suffered and hardened because of his suffering. So Scrooge hates the joy of Christmas. But then Scrooge meets three voices, three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And these ghosts walk him through his suffering, through what life was, is, and could be. And Scrooge sees the happiness of Christmas. In Lamentations, which begins on page 685 of your Bible, we meet a number of voices who have forgotten what happiness is. But our text today is anything but a ghost story. The Bible is the most honest book you'll ever read because it's ultimately written by the most honest author who ever wrote. God. And in Lamentations, God uses different voices to describe one of the most horrible times in the history of his chosen people, Israel. So in chapter 1, verse 18, one voice explains why this horrible time has come about. It's because Israel kept disobeying God. The voice says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So when you read about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they are some of the young men the author alludes to. These young men were captured during this period known as the exile. The exile isn't what Peter talks about in the New Testament when he writes to people he calls exiles. No, this exile is when God casted out his people out of his presence by his divine judgment, which he brought about through Israel's enemy, Babylon. If you look at chapter 1 and at the end of verse 9, you can see a voice crying out. The enemy has triumphed. It was the year 588 BC when Babylon triumphed over Israel. The Babylonians besieged its main city, Jerusalem, which means they surrounded the city and cut off its resources, its food supply. That siege lasted for a year and a half. Can you imagine food? not coming into your city for a year and a half. It's no wonder we hear maybe the most vulnerable voices in the book, the voices of hungry children. Look at the end of verse 11 in chapter 2. There the writer says, Infants 
and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. In the midst of this extreme suffering, we hear this voice of a man in chapter 3. This man could be the prophet Jeremiah. We have good reason to think Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. You can look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 9, verse 10 later to see that. But we're technically not sure who wrote Lamentations or who this man, this voice of chapter 3 is. And I think the fact that our narrator is nameless serves his point. He's showing that women, men, young, old, infants, mothers, everyone seemingly has been forgotten by God. And so at the end of verse 18 of chapter 3, the voice of this nameless narrator says, My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. If you could lend voice to your sufferings today, what would it sound like? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian because you feel forgotten by God. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian, but you feel forgotten by God. Either way, what is your hope in suffering? Why should you have hope? We'll answer these questions and borrow from Mr. Dickens for our outline today as we listen to a man who considers the past, the present, and the future. He listens to the past, the present, and the future of his suffering. In verses 19 and 20, we will look at the man of suffering past. The man of suffering past. That's point number one, the man of suffering past. The man of suffering past. He begins verse 19 by saying, I remember my afflictions and my wanderings the wormwood, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. In verses 19 and 20, we find this man remembering the past. He, he doesn't ignore his pain. He doesn't glamorize it. He's not gritting his teeth saying, yeah, no pain, no gain. No, he's meditating on the suffering he's experienced. He's exploring the depths of his afflictions, his wandering, the wormwood and the gall. Another word for gall is poison. And in verse 20, the man of suffering past mentions his soul. How it even tastes this poison. 
One thing I love about the Bible is that it confronts us as whole persons. The Bible speaks to our heads. See how the writer focuses on the mental aspect, the the memories? And the Bible also speaks to our souls. The writer here says his soul continually remembers the trauma God poured out on Israel. Consider that adverb, continually. That adverb reminds us that suffering is often a relentless thing. Suffering is rarely a single event. A calamity, a tragedy, that's an event. A car crash, the hospital visit gone wrong, the pink slip handed to you at work. But I've found that suffering is often what comes after the event. The sorrow of sitting at the table And that person is no longer sitting across from you. The sadness of pulling out your hair as the chemotherapy sets in. The anxiety mounting up in you as another month goes by without a paycheck. There's a slowness in suffering. And that's why our writer here has taken time to meditate on it. The key word in the title, Lamentations, is the word lament, and that's exactly what Lamentations is. It's a lament. It's a song of mourning like we'd sing at a funeral. The book of Lamentations is made up of five poems, one per chapter. And these poems were carefully, though miserably, crafted. You can see the writer's carefulness by his poetic technique. He uses what's called an acrostic in all but the final poem. An acrostic is when each verse of the poem starts with a different letter of the alphabet. And the man of suffering past would have written in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why did he use this technique? It was to show the A to Z of suffering, the totality of terror Israel experienced. Our author isn't bursting out and scribbling furious complaints saying, woe is me and why God? No, he's studying his suffering. He's analyzing the effects of his people's sin. Sin is doing, saying, thinking, feeling, wanting what we want instead of what God wants. Sin is fundamentally our nature by birth because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And the punishment for sin is pain, death, and even worse, separation from God. So it makes sense that the man of suffering past speaks of affliction. He goes on in verse 19 to speak of wanderings, or some versions translate that word as homelessness. 
Because of their sin, Adam and Eve were cast out of their holy home, the Garden of Eden, where God dwelled with them. And like Adam and Eve, Israel was cast out of their home, Jerusalem, where God dwelt among his people in the temple. The, the temple was the heart of the city, but it no longer had a pulse after the Babylonians sacked it. Now, when we're, when we're talking about things like the temple and Israel, we might be tempted to read ourselves right into that story. So we might think America will get judged like Israel and the Capitol building will crumble like the temple. And we just want to be careful not to do that. God had a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. So while we suffer like this man, it is a very dangerous thing to try to look at our suffering and say, I am suffering, I am experiencing this suffering because I committed that sin. The man of suffering past had prophets like Jeremiah come to his people and say, hey, if y'all don't stop doing this, then exile will happen. Our lives are not like that. That said, Lamentations was written to teach God's people about suffering. So, beloved, what might we learn from studying our suffering. No one likes to think about suffering, but there are lessons we can only learn in the school of suffering. And no one can graduate from this life without suffering. God wants to keep his children humble, and one way he does that is by allowing us to suffer. You see the humbling effect at the end of verse 20. Our author says his soul is bowed down within him. Brother, sister, does your suffering harden you or humble you? Do you run through life trying to forget conflict and pain? Now, please don't hear me saying that the Christian response to suffering is to only and continually remember your suffering. Life would then be a very sad affair. And I don't want Garrett coming back all happy from sabbatical and y'all telling him with a frown, the preacher you invited told us to just be sad. Okay, don't get me in trouble. Yes, Christians are a sorrowful people, but we are to be always rejoicing, amen? As we read earlier, Paul said, rejoice. In the Lord always. One pastor put it well when he said, Christians get hurt like everyone else, but we don't hurt like everyone else. We hurt differently. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who suffer with joy, who suffer with hope. Hope is what we see in the next section of our text. And here we're meeting the man who we will call the man of suffering present. That's point number two, the man of suffering present. The man of suffering present. We'll study him in verses 21 to 24. 
And in verse 21, our narrator, after talking about his pain, says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Here in verse 21, we see painful memories of the past interrupted as we enter the man's present experience. We see a theological thought uplifting a heavy heart. Again, do you see how our thoughts affect our feelings? What we think about matters. And that's why Paul commanded us in Philippians 4 to think about good things. As one who struggled with a bad season of anxiety, I was helped to think about it like this. Our faith should determine how we perceive facts. And the facts should then inform our feelings. So faith, fact, feelings. That's the proper order for how we should consider things. But too often, that order is flipped. And feelings are in the driver's seat, swerving around. And when our feelings are all over, which they often are, then how we see our facts will be all over, and our faith is soon forgotten. The spiritual amnesia sets in. Yet the man of suffering present provides the model we need. In verse 21, despite all the destruction he presently sees, in faith he calls a fact to mind and he has hope in the present moment. What does the author call to mind to lift up his soul? What gives him such great hope? Look at verses 22 and 23. Rejoice in this fact. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How can this man say that? Sorrows like sea billows, are rolling over him. How can he say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? We'll look at that word, Lord, again in verse 22. When you see Lord like this in all caps in your Bible, uh, it's not a typo. No, the writer is using a special name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh was the name that would remind the Israelites of the covenant God made with them. Not because of anything they did, but simply because he loved them. And in using that name, Yahweh, the writer expresses faith. He's saying that though the relationship between God and Israel is broken, the relationship is not over. He's saying, Yahweh, you're still our covenant God. The fact that God hasn't completely destroyed his people means he hasn't stopped loving them. It is one thing to love someone 
who is lovely. It's another thing to stay with someone and serve, with, and serve them when that person has sinned against you in terrible ways. And yet, God stays. And so the writer describes God's never-ceasing love as steadfast. It is unfailing. It is faithful, meaning we can put faith in it. The man of suffering present goes on to say that God's mercies never come to an end. Mercy is one of those words like grace that we can toss around so much that we lose its meaning. Grace is giving someone something they haven't earned. So, let's say you give your son extra time to play video games and eat ice cream. That's very gracious of you. And now your kids may remind you tonight, Dad, Mom, don't forget what the preacher said about being gracious. Mercy, on the other hand, is sparing someone of something they do deserve. And what does the Bible say we deserve for our sins? Death and eternal separation from God and hell. As As horrible as the exile is, it is nothing compared to hell. The pain of exile, our pain today, merely points to that place. We eternally So, the fact that the man of suffering present has breath in his lungs means that the story is not over. God has given him something better than he deserves, a new day. If you're here today and there's breath in your lungs, your story is not over. God is not finished with you yet. His mercy is poured out on you still. And every day you wake up and you're not in hell is a new mercy. That's why the writer goes on to say in verse 23 that God's mercies are new every morning. But if we're honest, isn't it so easy to wake up in the morning to a child screaming, to a phone full of text messages, and think, about the, and think about the day and how long the day ahead might be. So often we'd just rather stay in bed. But do you ever wake up and remind yourself that as hard as the day might be, It is better than what you deserve. Let us ingrain this fact in our souls. God does not owe anyone anything except for his righteous wrath. So as Mark Dever at CHBC says, anything but hell, that's dancing time. Now, I doubt many of you would say, I love God because he gave me health or wealth. 
But how do we react when God takes those things away? Are we surprised? Angry with God? Do we think God has taken what we deserve? Entitlement is deadly to contentment and gratitude. The way we most commonly express entitlement is by complaining. Complaining is the opposite of rejoicing. When we complain, we, maybe even unintentionally, forget that God's faithfulness is primarily concerned with our spiritual poverty, not our material prosperity. When we complain, we forget that life makes a lot more sense when we understand that the point of it is not our comfort, but God's glory. I don't know about you, uh, but complaining has never actually made me feel better in any given situation. Anyway, there's a, there's a difference between worldly complaining and godly sorrow. One is fueled by a sense of entitlement. The other is fueled by a humility that is broken over sin. Brother, sister, when you suffer, does your voice sound like the world or the man of Lamentations 3? From what I've heard about you, Delray Baptist Church, many of you, in your suffering, sound like the man of Lamentations 3. Humble, hopeful, continue in that, brothers and sisters. Continue in that. And remember that even when we are faithless, God's faithfulness remains great. Great is your faithfulness, the man of suffering present says. Though the destruction he sees may shake him, the man of suffering present finds stability for his faith in the character of God, God's faithfulness, displayed by the actions of God, God's giving new mercies every morning. The Lord is my portion. He goes on to say in verse 24, What he means there is that the Lord is all he needs. Knowing the Lord is what comforts him. He doesn't say knowing exactly why the exile happened is what comforts him. He's simply comforted by knowing the faithful God who reigns over the exile. So often, when we suffer, I think we're tempted to believe that if we just knew why exactly something was happening, then we'd feel better. But isn't it a fearful thing to remember that the desire to know everything is what led to the exile of Adam and Eve? Beloved, the man of suffering present is telling us that knowing God is enough. It's better than knowing why something is happening. As one pastor put it, the ultimate comfort in our suffering comes not from an explanation of the trial, but the revelation of God himself. 
brothers and sisters, even in the loss of everything. God is enough. Therefore, the man of suffering present goes on to say in verse 24, because God is enough, I will hope in him. Do you hear the resolve there? He doesn't say, I can, I should, I might. No, he says, I will hope in God. He's reminding us that there is nothing more reliable for us to put our hope in than God. We might be tempted to put our hope in ourselves. I know that when I suffer, I tend to withdraw. I think if I can just help myself, if I can just coach myself out of this, then I can help me. Perhaps you're tempted to put your hope in your spouse or food or drink. But what we should place our hope in is God. Earlier we sang, Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. The soul prostrate in the dust sounds like verse 20, doesn't it? With the soul being bowed down. Uh, Delray Baptist Church, hearing y'all sing this morning, oh, sweet. It was sweet. Praise God for the sad songs of the saints. I want to encourage you, if you're suffering and you showed up this morning, maybe that's all you had strength to do, to just show up. Brother, sister, I praise God you're here. Keep showing up on Sundays. Hearing the singing of the saints is one, one of the ways we can call to mind the faithfulness of God. Church is one of the ways God has planned for our hope to be renewed every week. Hope is the bookend for the verses we just considered, verses 21 to 24. The section starts with hope and ends with hope. Hope has so many benefits. It revives the soul. It yields peace, comfort, and confidence. Hope cures spiritual amnesia by by reminding us of God's faithfulness in our present suffering. Despair or hopelessness, it does none of that. But praise God that hope is the eviction notice of despair living in our hearts. It's so easy to listen to our hearts, isn't it? That's what the world tells us to do, especially when we're suffering. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones had a tip for us in this. He says that we often spend too much time listening to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves more. Maybe you've heard that phrase, preaching the truth to yourself. I think that's what we see in verse 25. We see the man stating, preaching, A basic fact. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And I think 
we're hearing more of the, the confident resolve of our narrator as he begins to consider what he'll do in the future. So we switch to the future in verses 25 to 27, and these verses we'll learn from the man of suffering future. The man of suffering future. Point three, the man of suffering future. So we've looked at the man of suffering past, the man of suffering present, and now the man of suffering future. The reason I talk about suffering in the future is because we were just on the mountaintop of lamentations. You'll notice that chapter three is three times longer than the other chapters. It's the center, the, the apex of lamentations. It's where we see God's faithfulness in our present suffering. But if we keep living, we will suffer yet again. And if you keep reading Lamentations, you will see the man of suffering leave the mountaintop and talk again about the agony of the exile. Remember, the exile lasted for years, and sometimes that's how long our suffering lasts. But one of my professors, he summed it up well when he said, it seems to please God more to change people slowly rather than circumstances quickly. When I first heard that, I was like, (laughs) it seems to please God more to change people slowly rather than circumstances quickly. So given that our circumstances may not change quickly, what does the man of futuring, what does the man of suffering future say? He says, verse 26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What does it mean to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord? It means to hope, to have faith that the Lord will deliver you from suffering. And as we wait in hope, we seek the Lord. So one metric to see how we're doing and waiting on God and seeking him is our prayer life. We sang earlier, to thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Brother, sister, does your prayer life reflect the fact that you believe God alone can heal? Notice here that we find a man suffering because of sin, and yet he cries out to God. Don't let your sin separate you anymore from God. Pray to him. Wait for him. Seek him. Now maybe you hear that and you think, my suffering is so great, I don't even have faith to pray. So often sermons on suffering can sound like, be quiet and do these ten things to feel better. Even as I was preparing the sermon, I was tempted to make the outline a bunch of to-dos. 
You know, in suffering we should study our suffering, recount God's faithfulness, and resolve to follow it. And those are helpful and true things for the believer, but it still leaves the burden to get better on us weaklings instead of our mighty God. And he is the point of this passage. This passage isn't ultimately about the great steps we can take to God, but the great steps he has taken to us. So, here's what I want you to notice in verses 25, 26, and 27. Goodness is the theme. That's why you see the word good in each verse. And that goodness is all dependent upon Yahweh. That's why the Lord gets glory in our suffering. And that's why the man of suffering future suggests that in suffering, all we basically do is wait. It almost sounds like a parent talking to a child. Just hang on. Just hang in there. But Isaac, isn't that just positive thinking? No. Positive thinking says, hang in there. Things will get better. But faith says, hang in there. Things will get better because God is on the throne. Positive thinking is rooted in fantasy. Faith is rooted in theology. So let me tell you a story about waiting in faith. Two brothers were grilling in a backyard. Right? We just had Memorial Day. And the son of one of the brothers fell into the pool. Nobody saw him fall in. So the brothers went on talking until the dad called for his son. They looked around. They finally saw him at the bottom of the pool. The dad jumps in, grabs his son, pulls him up, and by some miracle, the boy is fine. So later, after everyone calms down, the friend of the dad asked the kid who who fell in if he was scared. And the kid says, no, I just held up my arms and waited for my daddy to come get me. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Just wait for daddy. Though they are appropriate responses to already being saved, know at the end of the day, stuttering your suffering, recounting God's faithfulness, having the right balance of mind and soul, these don't save us from eternal suffering. But we don't have to do all of that perfectly to be saved. We don't have to hope in fantasies or ghost stories. We don't even have to wait at the bottom of the pool with our hands and arms spread out because there was another man of suffering who spread his arms for us. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Like God who dwelled in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, like God who dwelled in the Temple of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ dwelled among people in spiritual exile. And this divine man suffered, but not for his sins. He didn't have any sins. He was God. He was the only one of us who actually had the right to act entitled, but in love, he gave all that up and suffered for the sins of those who rebelled against him. In doing so, Jesus submitted to the discipline of God, the yoke of God that verse 27 speaks of even though he is the only one who didn't deserve it. He perfectly trusted God's plan and waited quietly for the Lord. He died, and oh, was the Lord good to this one who waited on him, because three days later, Jesus was raised from the tomb. 
So now anyone who is afflicted, lost, wandering, homeless, anyone who is exiled from God's presence because of their sin can turn from sin and put all their hope in Jesus, who is the salvation of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the salvation of the Lord Israel waited on. He is the salvation we look back on. And Jesus is still saving us today in the present. And in one day, in the future, he will finally save us from death and all suffering. And he will take us, his people, the new Israel, to our happy home forever. This is the happy news that the sad book of Lamentations points forward to. Do you believe it? Is it your hope? When you suffer, will you put your faith in uncontrollable circumstances, which can change, or in your unfailing Jesus who never changes? Oh, beloved, as a response to this salvation, resolve again this morning to entrust yourself not to your own weakness, but to your own Savior. And if you've never trusted Jesus, I invite you now, right now, to put your trust in him, put your hope in him before it's too late, before you see something far worse than the exile of Israel. Because if you trust in Jesus, whether you've suffered in the past, whether you're suffering now, or when you suffer in the future, it will be well with your soul. Because Jesus is the reason why the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. The Lord Jesus can be your portion. Will you hope in him? Let's pray.